Hello, uh, my name is James Bundy and I'm the Director of Operations for Freedom Declared Foundation. Freedom Declared was set up to champion freedom of religion or belief within the United Kingdom and I'm delighted today to be joined by Lois McClatchy to discuss her perspective about the state of freedom of religion within the UK. Lois is the Communications Officer for Alliance Defending Freedom UK, the human rights group which helped Canon Tom White case against the Scottish Government's worship ban in March last year. Lois advocates for fundamental freedoms, including freedom of religion or belief, in the media in the UK and further afield. And prior to this role, Lois served as a legal analyst at ADF International's UN advocacy team at the Human Rights Council in Geneva. Thank you for joining us today, Lois. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on, James. Yeah, it's our pleasure to have you. Uh, the first question that we ask uh, everyone is, how do you define freedom of religion <laughs> or belief? It's an important concept to define, isn't it? Because sometimes it can feel like such a fluffy um, kind of sentiment uh, within human rights law. But I think taking it back from its kind of legal roots and just thinking about it on maybe an individual basis, I think this is really one of the most important things that is at the essence of our humanity. It's something that is, um, is outworked in action, but at core, it's really to do with who we are. It's quite an identitarian um, part of who we are. What we believe no one can kind of uh, force us to change that. It's something that's free from coercion. It's something that is, uh, can't be compelled and it's something that we just, uh, it is something that we believe uh, we are, we are it's a huge thing that depends on freedom itself, because we have to be free to be able to uh, outwork what we think on our inside. So I think, yeah, it's something that's on a philosophical level, uh, very, very core um, to yeah, just being an individual human, being a citizen of the world. As you said, uh, freedom of religion or belief is uh, the essence of humanity, and it can be quite difficult to incorporate all that uh, into law. Um, Article 18 of the UN Human Rights uh, and Article 9 of the European Convention tries to do that. Uh, do you think your definition aligns with what's within those uh, articles? Yeah, I think that international law is robust in its protection of freedom of religion and belief. Um, it uh, protects both the essence of belief but also the outworking manifestation of what that belief entails. Uh, so Article 18, which you talk about a lot in your interviews, um, is something that incorporates um, the expression of faith, both in private and in public. And for me, that's one of the really critical parts uh, of international law is that uh, we have the freedom to um, believe what we think in a dark, closeted room where nobody is there. We have the freedom to be able to think what we want to think, what we, what we believe is true. Uh, so that's one element, but there's also a public um, ability to, to live out that faith without fear of persecution. Uh, and that's to, you know, to be able to incorporate in public worship, public expressions of what one thinks is true or what one thinks is not true. Uh, so I think the, the provisions are robust and it's a, a question of taking them seriously and upholding them. Yes, uh, and previous interviews, um, so Bishop John Keenan, for example, said that the UK does have those legal protections uh, that Article 18 and Article 9 provide. Um, do you think, maybe on a society level, that the UK lives up to those obligations? So I think that's a really, really interesting question, um, because I think, has, every, has any country lived up 
100% every human rights obligation that it signed on to? Well, the, question, the answer is there's different levels of interpretation in that question. Um, so if we look over to, um, so I'm a Christian, if I look over to uh, my Christian brothers and sisters who live uh, in South Asia uh, or the Middle East, uh, the restrictions on their freedom are, are very intense. They have very limited freedom to even ex or own up their, their identity as being a Christian. Um, so comparatively across um, to some of some other countries, the UK does a marvelous job. I've never been arrested uh, yet <laughs> for my beliefs. Um, and, um, you know, we have the freedom to uh, most of the time, which we will get into later, I'm sure, to attend uh, a church or a mosque or a synagogue uh, of our choice and to um, a large extent, hopefully, uh, and still kind of written into law, we have the provision to express beliefs. Um, I think the it's a kind of critical moment, I think, uh, for the UK in deciding whether they want to really still be protected and giving the protections that they've given so far that they have upheld. Um, freedom of speech is very clearly linked uh, to freedom of religion and belief. Um, but we see more and more uh, every day on the news that that kind of freedom is becoming a lot more under pressure. And it's uh, people of faith who are often uh, on the short end of that pressure. Uh, so I think this is kind of a critical turning point for, for the UK and also for Europe, as we kind of compare different European approaches at the moment to um, allowing freedom of religion belief, but uh, putting uh, restrictions on so-called things like so-called hate speech, uh, which are kind of poorly interpreted uh, provisions against religious freedom. Um, and the UK really has to decide, are they going to stick to their guns and, and uphold freedom and democracy, or are they going to kind of follow a model which will end up not being uh, something that supports freedom of religion and belief? Yes, and one of the things that you uh, said that uh, is central to Article 18 is the expression of the faith in public. Um, you worked in the case in Scotland um, when the Scottish government closed places of worship in the second lockdown. Um, the, the ruling of the court of session was pretty solid in terms of the human right to uh, worship publicly. Do you think that court of session judgment is an underline or do you still think there's a threat in the future? I think it, for me it was really a wake-up call um, and I'll tell you why. It's because um, those provisions that um, for the first time in a very long time in Scotland and sometimes in the UK, but the, the case was taking place in Scotland, it was the first time that the government had actually just completely banned uh, for you know a long time in living memory, at least, people from going to church. And they did that under emergency provisions. Um, and it was something that was not put through the democratic process in the right way. And it was just done almost kind of overnight. Um, this decision was made that the freedom of religion was not important enough uh, to be protected in the times of a pandemic. Um, and now a lot of people who supported that case with us um, absolutely acknowledged that in a time of pandemic, we needed to take precautions, we needed to take care of each other, especially back in the earlier days when we knew much less about the virus. Um, I don't think anyone would argue that there was no need to have kind of raised concerns or you know, take other necessary steps. Uh, but what was more concerning was that the government um, allowed people to take precautions, but still go to places like bicycle shops, supermarkets, different places of commerce. Uh, but they thought that freedom that the freedom to go to church was not important enough that they would um, kind of put in measures so that people could still go. They said, no, we're just putting in a blanket ban across the country, no matter where you are, no matter if you're in the, a countryside area of two people or the city center of Edinburgh. Uh, you can't go to church at the moment. 
So I think that was a wake up call for those who have an interest or um, a concern in making sure that, that Scotland maintains freedom of worship, because if when it, human rights are really tested when it comes to times of emergency, if it comes to times of emergency and that's the first to go, that really says something about what the government values or doesn't value. Um, of course, zooming forward to March last year, the kind of uh, end of that story, it was it was a happy ending. We had a great um, court decision uh, which said that the government could not put a blanket ban on worship and human rights were upheld at the end of the day. So we can be really, really thankful uh, and um, happy about that outcome. But I think it can be taken as a note of caution that these things are not to be taken for granted. And there could be a, quite a certain degree of religious liter illiteracy. Uh, amongst officials who don't appreciate or understand that freedom of religion is just as important uh, as any other human right and must be given the respect that it deserves. Yes, uh, and I think you know, that wake up call and you know, being cautious about our freedoms, our human rights in the UK is one of the reasons why Freedom Declared were set up. Right. Um, because whilst we do have uh, a lot of, as you said, compared to many other countries around the world, the UK does a very good job in implementing freedom of religion or belief. But you know, when emergency powers are implemented, when uh, yeah, there's a pandemic and there might be greater concerns, it's how do we protect those human rights? And as we're leaving, or hopefully leaving uh, the, the worst of COVID behind us, um, how do we ensure that freedom of religion or belief uh, remains central to government thinking across the UK? Uh, and that links us nicely to a bill that's happening at Westminster, so another part of the UK, which mm -hmm. is the PCSC bill. Uh, and I know ADF have made a lot of comments about the <laughs> bill and the threat to freedom of speech uh, that it poses. Uh, and as you said, freedom of speech is linked very closely with freedom of religion or belief. Um, so what is it that is within this bill which poses a threat to freedom of religion or belief? Yeah. Well, let's zoom out for a second um, from the PCSC bill because it links onto something a little bit wider in public order law. Um, so the Public Order Act, which was brought in in the 1980s, um, was um, actually put in place at first to tackle football hooliganism. Uh, it was, you know, it was a time and place where that was kind of the desired outcome. They thought it was necessary for the purpose of controlling crowds, uh, making sure everybody stayed safe, uh, was to put in restrictions. Uh, on um, public activity, public expression, that kind of thing. And as is so often, as we see with, with these um, provisions against speech across Europe, they come in for one specific reason. And nobody thinks that further down the line, we're going to be seeing grandmas or grandpas, um, you know, facing legal charges under this kind of stuff for simply expressing their religious views. But fast forward, what, uh, 30 years since then? And we are in a situation where we're seeing um, people who are condemned for what they are saying publicly uh, about their faith uh, on this provision that was brought in to tackle football hooliganism. Um, so to go into kind of the more nitty gritty details, I won't go too legal um, to keep it to keep it a little bit interesting. But um, there used to be a provision within Section Five of the Public Order Act uh, that banned um, insulting speech, and so it was threatening, abusive, and insulting speech. And it was about 2013 when a group, a coalition of actors came together and they said, this isn't right. Um, insult can be interpreted in a hundred different ways. 
um, someone can um, be simply expressing their point of view in a way that they um, disagree with someone's lifestyle choices, disagree with the way that someone's cut their hair, I don't know, and they just want to be able to say that to their friend, to have a discussion about something that's going through the public debate. Um, you know, at the time there was um, a lot of talk about marriage, there was a lot of talk about different, um, and yeah, controversial elements of society, um, and the way that we, yeah, legislate on things like marriage. Um, and they wanted to be able to have open conversations about that. And I think, like, no matter what side you fall on the, these debates, like, debate is a good thing. Um, conversation is a good thing. We can learn from each other. We can grow. We can, uh, I know that you've um, hosted, and James, I've participated with the Freedom Claire Foundation, some forums where different faiths talk together. And that's really a good thing to be able to um, compare our beliefs. And if we don't end up agreeing, that we at least learn something and can kind of maybe sharpen our own view. Um, so this coalition of actors came into 2014 and they said that no this this isn't right this isn't democratic we want to be able to have conversations and within that group there was Christians there was comedians that including Mr Bean Ron Atkinson uh, there were LGBT actors um, who wanted to be able to have open conversations with Christians and maybe even like change some minds on their side as well they wanted to be able to have those conversations uh, and there was a whole range of other actors faith actors and um, humanists and other kind of groups in there as well. Uh, so they formed a campaign called the uh, Feel Free to Disagree With Me, Feel Free to Disagree campaign, and they um, successfully got the government to remove the word insulting from the Public Order Act. Uh, and it was a great victory for free speech at the time, and we can look back to that with a lot of respect for those people who were involved, because that was a really great thing to do. Um, so now we're in a situation where only threatening and abusive speech is against the law, and most people would think, well, that's that's great. Um, I'm not a threatening or abusive person. And, you know, Christians aren't normally threatening or abusive people, and they certainly shouldn't be if they're following uh, the teachings of the Bible. They shouldn't be uh, threatening or abusive. So that's great. But <laughs> somehow in 2022, we find ourselves in a situation where street preachers are being repeatedly find, finding themselves under arrest because of this provision. Um, they'll be expressing their views, uh, expressing the teachings of their faith, and um, particularly for the evangelical community, but for all Christians, um, being able to um, kind of use the gospel as an appeal uh, and to encourage people to join the faith is actually a very critical tenet of our faith. Uh, it's something that we at the Great Commission uh, were instructed to do, to share the good news of the gospel and be able to um, yeah, let that um, hope uh, that is uh, written into the Bible, share that around the community that more may, more may enjoy it, more may um, have that in their lives uh, and enjoy that as a good thing. So we're actually, to, to live out your faith as a Christian means that you have to be able to share it with other people. When people have been sharing it in the streets, they have fallen foul of arrest. Um, one example of this happened last summer. There was um, a 71-year-old gentleman who had been uh, street preaching for much of his life, and he was uh, out there in the square. Now, not everybody likes street preachers, not even all Christians like street preachers. It can be a little bit, <laughs> a little bit much in the street sometimes, I know, but they do have the right to be able to say what they want to say, and there's been many, many success stories of people actually being positively impacted by street preachers. So Alec John Sherwood was um, preacher talking about his faith, uh, including the verse in Genesis, man and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Um, he was reported um, for having committed uh, hate speech 
Um, he was, the police came, they, tore, they took this 71-year-old uh, gentleman off his stool quite roughly. I think he actually sustained a little bit of an injury to his elbow. Um, he was taken into the cells for a night. He was grilled on his views, theologically. And, that's, and he was not, uh, in the end, prosecuted. But this happens so, so often. We see street preachers who are arrested, maybe spend a night in the cells. Uh, and then after a huge emotional ordeal and even getting lawyers involved, et cetera, the, the case doesn't move forward because people realize or the police realize that there isn't grounds for this in the end. But the chill that that creates uh, for Christians, for people of faith in society to see these people going out publicly and facing arrest um, is something that really impacts freedom of religion and belief. It makes us feel that we're not welcome to share our beliefs in the UK. And that means that the conversation is much poorer for it. Yes, and the, the guy and the preachers is because it's threatening or abusive. That, that's the terminology. That's right, threatening or abusive. And the gospel, as most of us know, is not threatening or abusive. But the problem comes in the interpretation of these words. Quite often now we find um, people in society on Twitter, for example, claiming that they have been emotionally abused by someone's view. Um, we see that time and time again. If you look at the J.K. Rowling is the classic example. She uh, tweeted her support for biological womanhood, um, for um, women having safe spaces and kind of rape shelters, crisis shelters, that kind of thing. We all know her, her commonly held views uh, on biological uh, sex. Um, she was accused of kind of fanning a genocide on Twitter. The people really responded and said that she was causing death, she was causing pain and harm, dangerous views that she had to be, you know, she should be banished and never come back. People were burning her books. We see that the emotional reaction to um, sharing of views now is, is heightened. Um, and that's, yeah, leading people to interpret these things as abusive and arrests to happen because of that. Um, there was a case uh, last summer, Hazel Lewis, she was uh, a woman who was street preaching um, down in London, I think it was Finsbury Park, I'd have to double check the location. Um, now she was arrested for, for expressing her beliefs, including that saying that everyone was a sinner. Um, if, you know, people who have uh, a kind of theological um, background in the Bible know that the Bible says very clearly that all people are sinners, including me, including everybody. Uh, and that's really much, uh, very much a fundamental tenet of the Christian faith is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but that there is redemption uh, available to all through um, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So to say that, um, that she had been abusive for expecting all people are sinners really opens up a difficult conversation about what theology can be adhered to uh, now within the public square. Yes, uh, and these cases are before the PCSC bill becomes yes, law. So that's what, right. <laughs> what changes are actually in the PCSC bill which are so concerning? Thank you for bringing me back to that. I went off on a tangent there. <laughs> that's right. So the PCSC bill is, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of uh, an upgrade to this over 30-year-old piece of legislation. And I think at the outset, free speech advocates had hoped that it would be uh, used um, to put in, you know, good upgrades to uh, to underline freedom of speech in a way that wasn't before, um, to express, you know, that all people of all faiths, for example, can express their deeply held views, and that's part of the fabric of society. But that's not the way, unfortunately, that it was drafted, and it's not the way that it's um, been put through just now. And it's now uh, just gone through the House of Lords, and it's going back to the House of Parliament or the House of um, Commons soon. 
Um, within that, the original draft, for example, had provisions such as being a serious annoyance uh, on the street uh, was a criminal offence. Um, I don't know about you, James. I was, has anyone ever called you a serious annoyance? I think they probably no, said no, it. Well, no, <laughs> no, no, no. said about me sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so to think that um, this could be something that you know you find you express your belief, someone finds you to be seriously annoying. Uh, and before you know it, you are facing the weight of the law. The big change that was kind of well, one of the most significant parts of the bill was that it initially defined protest in a way that could have just been attributed to one person. So, and this goes further than even just street features, but you know, people shaking or shaking a tin or um, standing out to save the whales, I don't know. There's all sorts of people who like to stand and, and use the street as a way to share their political message or, or another kind of message. And um, for them as a one person, to be defined as a one person protest puts them under a lot of danger. They um, you know, can be um, yeah, prosecuted in a, a very different way than they, than they would have before. So there's a range of different um, ways that this bill has really just changed the tone of how we see people sharing their faith. Uh, we see them now as a serious annoyance, not as somebody who's just, well, they're allowed to share the view. And you know, let's be honest, sometimes people are seriously annoying in the streets, but as part of our fundamental human rights to be able to have freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, we have to be able to challenge the government, for example, on provisions that they put through by assembling, by protesting, by speaking. Um, it's a really a fundamental way of how we live. And um, another way that it, uh, another group that it impacts, of course, is sometimes um, there are religious assemblies outside through processions or through vigils um, that occur maybe outside of abortion facilities as well. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, how do one defines annoying in law? <laughs> um, I don't understand because it's purely subjective. Um, and yeah, it opens a can of worms of potential interpretations. Um, and yeah, one bit that you mentioned just at the end of your answer there was abortion clinics. And in the UK and elsewhere in the world, uh, there is quite heated debate about prayers outside abortion clinics. Uh, people who want to introduce a buffer zone um, say that women who are going uh, to seek an abortion should not have the religious views of others who oppose abortion forced upon them just before they're about to go for a medical procedure. Um, how would you respond to that? Because uh, coercion is part of freedom of religion, I believe, the freedom from coercion. Um, so they would argue that a buffer zone would be within Article 18. Mm. Uh, would you? How would you respond to that? Oh, I see. So would, would, is your kind of argument there that um, the women who don't want to witness this praying would say that they're being coerced? Yeah, into being a religious space yeah, yeah that's, upon them yeah that's a really interesting question James I think the key uh part of this and this is a question that it we framed it within the abortion clinic setting but actually this is kind of a critical question isn't it about um where does somebody's right to express their faith end with someone who doesn't want to hear it um but I think when we take the abortion facility setting we have to acknowledge that a lot of the time uh, vigils are uh, people who are silently praying <laughs> or just standing and expressing 
um, their views and more often than not, um, these charities uh, are not portrayed in the way that, are not exactly how they're portrayed in the media as kind of stark raving, uh, crazy people shouting um, slogans and carrying um, awful messages and condemning the women. Actually, that's not really um, the way that it happens because most of these people come from faith-based organizations who are very loving. Um, and quite often they're handing out um, offers of help um, a lot of women say that if they had, if they only had emotional help, if they only had financial help, uh, if they only had a friend who wanted to support them through it, then they would actually not turn to abortion. It's often a worst case scenario for them. Um, so because of the fact, and not all of these groups are Christian and not all of them are faith-based and some of them are working as independent charities and that's great. Uh, but from a faith-based perspective, um, quite often these groups are doing kind of a, a faith-based charitable loving act. They're saying, look, I can help you. Uh, I have these facilities. We have these resources for you if you would like. Uh, we have counseling and prayer available for you if you would like. This is, all, this is usually the kind of offers that they're giving out. Um, so I think the framing of how this is portrayed in the media is very, very damaging. It kind of labels uh, these actors who are really doing a very... Um, a great service that many women have benefited from. There's uh, a case we can go into after a woman who is actually, uh, she challenged the, um, the buffer zone legislation in court because she herself had been helped so much uh, to keep her child and she had even started volunteering for this group to offer other women the chance to keep their child if they wanted. Um, so the framing of it has just been so slanderous against um, these groups who are offering really good things uh, that it's not really been a fair it's not been a fair portrayal at all. Um, so freedom of religion in that context um, has to be protected because all people have the right to pray, <laughs> even if it's in their mind. How can someone possibly control what someone does in their mind? All people have the right to express their reason. All people have the right to offer um, help and offer love if that's what they are compelled or called to do. So I think that's probably the way forward. <laughs> you know, it's interesting to hear that perspective um, about you know this is a question about where you can pray and yeah and you don't necessarily have to pray out loud so how, how yeah criminalized for praying silently and that's um, actually in in Richmond and in Ealing where these uh, buffer zone kind of legislations have been brought in by local councils they've banned silent prayer they, that, that's how the legislation is to be interpreted is to ban silent prayer and that opens up an even wider can of worms because how can one possibly look into your mind? This is kind of a weird trend that's happening at the moment. And I wrote an article in November about um, the policing of staring on public transport now, uh, which kind of it says that it has to you know, be of an intrusive nature. And it kind of like implies that it has to like be able to tell your motive at the time. Uh, so I kind of wrote about that and then referenced um, being able to pray silently and not be able to have your mind intruded quite because it, it cannot happen. But this goes back to kind of our, our question one philosophical belief about what freedom of religion is. It's something that's so internal to you uh, at a base level. It's something that's so integral to your humanity that how can it possibly be criminalized for you to think religious thoughts? Yeah, and that, that is like a big question. <laughs> one of the reasons why freedom declared uh, is is here uh, to to try and yeah get these questions out in the open and get conversation around them. Uh, you've raised many issues about freedom of religion of belief in the UK, from street preachers getting arrested, places of worship 
being close to potentially, well, there are some comes of banning silent prayer. Um, but as you said, and what a lot of people say is that the UK compared to many countries in the world are comparatively are doing a very good job. Um, and I think it's important to keep that context um, alive because it's definitely true. Um, but how do you think investigating the implementation of freedom of religion or belief in the UK will help the UK champion freedom of religion or belief on the world stage? Yeah, that's such an important question. And I really saw uh, when I worked at the United Nations, I worked for ADF International at the United Nations, um, I saw how um, upholding principles of democracy and of, of human rights in a country like the UK can have a huge impact on the influence it has because it has a huge, yeah, it does like at the UN, it has its, its voice really, really matters. So I think this really is a chance for us to set an example. Now, as you've said, James, I've outlined a lot of problems that the UK is facing in terms of the direction it might take uh, in terms of freedom of religion. But maybe we could, this could actually be an inflection point um, where it starts to recognize what is happening and make some changes and adjustments. Um, you know, the, the way in which, for example, um, cancel culture on you know, Twitter, online, is uh, kind of coming after people for expressing their views. That can be something that we actually protect. We can acknowledge that and protect that laws and, and reinforce our freedom of speech. And um, we can make sure that the government officials and police officers actually have um, training in religious literacy so that when they're in a situation where they're faced by a street preacher, they know that he actually has the right to express his religion and belief um, and that he's actually doing something that he's um, called to do for his faith. And normally they're doing it from a, very, uh, a good place of love um, and it need not be criminalized at all. Um, so there's steps that we can certainly take to improve our standing uh, on protecting freedom of religion and freedom of speech. And I think this is critically important because as we have an internet kind of look overseas internationally, um, there is a lot of comparison at the moment between the kind of incoming hate speech laws in Europe and blasphemy laws which exist in uh, South Asia and other parts of the world. Um, now, working for ADF International, I get a great view to be able to see both of these because we work both in all areas across the world. We have a network of, I think, 3,400 lawyers, so we hear lots of stories all the time from many, many places. Um, and I will be the first to tell you that it is not the same <laughs> in South Asia and in Europe. Um, we have a case um, that happened last year where we were able to support the freedom of a couple in Pakistan, Shukifta and Shafkat. They had sat on death row for seven years uh, in Pakistan, away from their kids, away from society, in terrible conditions, because they'd been accused of sending uh, a blasphemous text, a text that had offended the majority um, uh, religion in there is Islam, and they had been accused of, of offending that um, religion, and therefore they had been banished to prison and fortunately we were able to um, help uh, with their case and now they are living freely in uh, Europe which is great news for them um, but bear that in mind and then zoom across with me uh, across the other side of the world in Finland where we have another case uh, we have a very prominent case right now it's actually going to a secondary of trial uh, on Monday 14th February so right around the corner from when we we're recording this and um, that is the case of uh, Pavi Rasnin and her bishop um, Bishop Paola. Now they have, are under counts of, uh, tr under charges that carry a prison sentence themselves, 
Um, and they're being accused of hate speech for uh, expressing their beliefs, actually in a very similar way. One was sent by a text in Pakistan uh, and Pavey sent a tweet. Uh, she sent a tweet uh, to her church leadership about whether they should have sponsored the Pride Parade that year, obviously saying that they shouldn't have, they shouldn't think that they should have. And she included Bible verses. She'd already also had written a pamphlet uh, for her church in 2004 about sexuality. Uh, her bishop had published that. So they were on another count of hate speech for that. And they took a small sound clip out of an interview that she gave in 2019, and they put that one in as well. Um, so they're on trial facing um, a charge that carries a prison sentence um, for expressing their views. Now, Pavey's story and Shikushin Shafka's story are miles apart because Pavey will not languish on, for seven years on death row. Um, for a text that she didn't send. It, it is completely, completely different. Um, and we shouldn't ever say that, that it's the same. But I think we can look internationally and get a feel for the temperature of the direction that these things can go. Um, you know, a few years ago, I think that Pavey would, that would never have been prosecuted for tweeting some Bible verses in a question to her church leadership. Um, but already she's facing a charge that carries a penalty of a prison sentence. So we can kind of look at these two extremes that are kind of <laughs> uh, east and west from us if you like and and think about um well maybe it's time that the uk really nailed their colors to the mast um uh, if we are going to be condemning blasphemy laws and condemning the treatment of shagifta and shafgat who uh, had a terrible time and asia Bibi, who's also another famous case uh, of, of a, a christian being persecuted for their faith in pakistan and there's so so many more that we can talk about if we want to have a standing in saying that no blasphemy laws are wrong, everybody in society must be able to express their views, we support open conversation here in the UK, then we really have to do it. We have to support open conversation here in the UK. We can't be repealing our blasphemy law on one hand and putting in a hate speech law on the other, which did happen last year in Scotland. And hopefully it's not been implemented yet. Um, but that law really just turned from one label of a hate of a of a speech restriction to another so like i said this is really an inflection point that i think we can um decide what way we want to go do we want to uh, just kind of kowtow and kind of follow the crowd on these um uh speech restrictions or do we want to actually make a stand for democracy and have a really um compelling uh, way to express how democracy functions and be able to show that as an example to the rest of the world yeah, and, and that, that links us nicely to our final question, uh, which uh, I ask everyone. Uh, so we're upholding democracy, upholding freedom of speech, upholding uh, freedom of religion or belief. Uh, what is the number one thing that the UK government should be doing to ensure that these rights are being fully implemented uh, within the United Kingdom? Yeah, okay, great question. Um, I think um, that I mentioned this before, but I think that um, civil servants, government aid, government uh, ministers, anyone involved in policy, and police officers particularly, uh, need to have specific training on religious literacy, on understanding the importance of freedom of religion and belief. Because it starts with the individual. The government is made up of individuals, and we don't want a situation again when we're facing an unexpected crisis, unexpected emergency like the COVID pandemic, and suddenly we don't understand that religious freedom is really important. So we have to start now. We have to start building this into our culture, um, using events and opportunities um, that we're, we have forums to discuss freedom of religion and belief, perhaps international forums, and making sure that we are preparing seriously for them. We're understanding the problems that are, having, are happening abroad 
because of speech restrictions, blasphemy restrictions and anti-conversion laws, and making sure that we don't have any sort of Western version from them. If we want to support democracy and freedom of speech, we've really got to do it. We've got to make sure, even for our unpopular religious beliefs, we've got to make sure that they have um, a way to be part of the conversation too. Yes, and that's why Freedom Cleared was set up, to get that religious literacy increased uh, throughout the whole UK, particularly uh, in government and across uh, members of parliament for all parties, because uh, yeah, when the, the next emergency crisis comes, we want to ensure that you know, regardless of what parties are in government, that uh, they understand the importance of freedom of religion or belief. Thank you so much for your time, Lois. Yeah, thank you sharing, so much. Sharing your thoughts. Uh, very, yeah, very hard hitting some of the things that you said. Uh, and yeah, I think people will be shocked to hear some of the examples that you gave mm -hmm. about uh, freedom of religion or belief within the UK. Uh, for those who have been watching, please uh, do comment uh, your thoughts uh, in the comment section. And if you want to stay up to date with the latest interviews, please do subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. Thank you once again, Lois, for joining us. And yeah, I hope you have a nice, a nice rest of your day. Thank you, James. Thank you for the important work that you all do at Freedom Declared Foundation. Thank you.